Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll be picking up in verse 57. Luke chapter 1 on this happy Mother's Day. As we continue to look at the Gospel of Luke, we find that after the writer provides us with some of the background and the origin to Jesus and John the Baptist, we now enter a section of Scripture that is often referred to as the birth narratives. Between verse 57 and chapter 2, verse 20, we're given details as to the exact days of their births. John the Baptist is born about six months prior to Christ. I'll begin reading in verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy towards her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them in all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Well, as we've discussed earlier, as we've been in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, establishing origin is noticeably important to Luke. He wants us to know the origin of our faith. And Luke's gospel helps us to recognize that unlike Islam or Mormonism, Christianity just didn't begin one day and fall out of the sky. Um, Some unlearned people even insist that the Apostle Paul as we know him uh, was a rogue type of Pharisee. That, that he started Christianity on his own as kind of a cult breakaway from Judaism. That rumor is being circulated. But we have to observe the full story of Scripture, and when we do, we won't fall for such deceit. We mustn't stumble. The origin of our faith is not in any single human author or preacher. That's how the false religions have come about. Our, our faith isn't even in the writings of one particular man, such as the Apostle Paul, all alone by himself. The foundation of our faith, it's the summation of the prophecies of all Scripture, as spoken by God through at least 40 different prophetic writers who themselves document God's story, even from the beginning in creation. So our faith is established, Ephesians 2.20 says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Ruth 
Buchanan reemphasized to me just a couple weeks ago as she was talking about the genre or the, the writing style of the Bible. There, there's nothing else like it in the world. It, it stands completely alone. It's irrefutably divine. Its origin is divine. There's no other book similar. There's no other collection of books, even in the same ballpark, that records uh, origin of history, revelation of God as it is given over uh, the millennia, the predicted and fulfilled prophecy contained, uh, the oracles of truth, wisdom, Christian doctrine, and even future eschatology that is yet to be fulfilled. The Bible stands alone. So it's important for us to realize that that Christianity didn't begin with just 12 of Christ's apostles even. They didn't create Christianity. They didn't create our faith. They are not its origin. Instead, they are witnesses of what historic uh, events regarding Jesus Christ, uh, how they occurred, when and where, including his resurrection from the dead. They testify to the salvation made available to all mankind through Christ, just as it was predicted throughout the Old Testament prophets. Uh, This narrative that we're currently studying, the beginning of Luke, it isn't the beginning of a new religion. We've stated that before. It is a fulfillment of God's eternal plan of redemption through His Son, who died on the cross bearing the sins of others. The sinless man died bearing the sins of the ungodly. That would be us. And the Apostle Peter reassures Christians, just like you and me, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, by saying this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. He, meaning the Spirit within them, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to follow. It was revealed to them, meaning referring to the prophets again, that they were not serving themselves, the Old Testament prophets, but you, meaning us. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit that was sent from heaven. So these two children that that we see, Jesus and John, they are born in a moment of time, but they also had a destiny. They had a destiny. The prophet spoke about both of them with great detail. Obviously, especially Christ. But John the Baptist as well. Uh, These boys uh, didn't grow up and suddenly one day decide on their own, you know, I I think I'm going to take up preaching and start just preaching some things about God. That's that's not what happened. They they weren't looking for a career boost. So I'm going to go out preaching about some God things. No, in fact, a genuine preacher of the gospel doesn't enter the ministry as a means of making a living. Preachers are set apart and they're called by God to preach the gospel. Our narrative uh, should convince any reasonable reader that would look through the gospel of Luke that John the Baptist, he was set apart from conception. He was set apart as a prophet and a preacher. He wasn't pursuing a course of his own design. He wasn't doing something out on his own. He was fulfilling the purposes of God, the prophecies of God. 
Reflecting back, beginning in Luke uh, chapter 1, just to kind of summarize a couple things for us, beginning in verse 13, to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, the angel said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you will give him the name John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, so he didn't have a lot of say in it. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, meaning the Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we saw that the angel told Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his, call his name Jesus He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Again, prophecy that is going to be fulfilled. These men had destinies. They had destinies. Were they just anomalies? Were they just happenstance, occurrences? Or is God at work using messengers? Perhaps even many messengers. How about the Apostle Paul? He founded for some 20 or 30 years. He even persecuted the church of God. Threw Christians in prison. And uh, yet Christ intervened in his life on the Damascus Road. And in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13... Paul actually uses his life prior to conversion, that that period when he was persecuting the church of God, he uses that to validate his calling by saying, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul tried to destroy the church of Christ. But when God, who had set me apart, Paul says, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the churches who were in Judea, he says, who were in Christ, kept on hearing this. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God. Paul initially tried to destroy the church. He pursued a course of destroying Christ's work. But even when knitted in the womb, even while in the womb, God had a greater plan for him. And then we have Jeremiah the prophet, very famous prophet we're familiar with, a very famous verse. God says, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet among the nations. God consecrated and appointed Jeremiah a prophet. So prophets, apostles, I would even throw in there, this will need to be flushed out at another time, even pastors don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. 
Preaching is a calling of the Holy Spirit. And, and for that reason, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, because it's a calling of the Spirit, he said, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, Paul says. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He couldn't do anything but preach the gospel. And in the Old Testament, preachers, prophets, those who spoke God's word were called by the Holy Spirit, recognized through prophecy. Today, preachers are called by the Holy Spirit, recognized, 1 Timothy 4.14, through the laying of hands by the church. So the Apostle Paul, he wasn't a rogue. The church in Antioch actually identified with him. They heard the utterances of God and they laid hands on him. You can see that in Acts chapter 13, verse 3. Paul was set apart. John the Baptist was set apart by the Holy Spirit, and his birth is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Israel, they were waiting. They were waiting with great anticipation for this forerunner, who would be John. In fact, God's people are always looking forward to redemption. Even today, we still look forward to the return of Christ, a consummation of his kingdom. And we look with anticipation. But Israel was looking forward with anticipation of the redemption that would come. And if you've been with us in the men's study on Wednesday night, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And and just this past week, we were reviewing the righteous offspring of Seth. That's the godly line, the godly descendants, those who believed in the Old Testament. And one of Seth's descendants, his name was Lamech, he celebrated the birth of his son. His son would be named Noah. He called him Noah. The root word of Noah means rest. And Lamech said to Noah, of Noah, excuse me, in Genesis 5, 29, he said of his newborn son, this will be the one who will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. So even, even way back then, by faith, Lamech, he was looking forward to a rest that would come. A, a rest from the work. A rest that God would provide through a deliverer. He was hoping that Noah would be that one. He was in anticipation, hoping that Noah would be the deliverer that was promised to Eve in the garden. The one who would reverse the curse on creation and crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve were waiting on that person from the beginning. I mean, who doesn't want rest? I don't know about you, but my sprinkler system broke this week. I'm mowing the lawn. It grows back every week. It's a, it's a treadmill that we're on. You go to work, you earn some money, your car breaks down, it's gone. Just this, this cycle. And, and then you've got disease and, and hurt, loss. Who doesn't want rest from this curse? Israel did. They wanted rest. And this anticipation of a deliverer who would give rest was very evident among Israel. They were waiting on this deliverer. It's called a Messiah who would come. Uh, So in biblical Hebrew thought, in their line of thought, a pregnancy, a birth of a child, it offered great hope for the future. They were looking towards the future. They were looking for that descendant. In fact, it's a part of the, of the symbolism in circumcision. 
They, they were required to circumcise each male so, so that they were always thinking about the offspring. The offspring. We're, we're, we celebrate what? The Lord's Supper. We're always thinking about the crucifixion, the death of Christ, its symbolism, and then his return to come, also is celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Um, they're always hoping this offspring, this seed, this descendant would be the one who would save them. And uh, biblically speaking, a pregnancy is never, biblically speaking, pregnancy is never an inconvenience or a problem. After the point of conception, it doesn't then become categorized as, well, now it's a choice. It's not seen that way in Scripture. The arrival of a child, it's categorized as a blessed hope of the future. Children are the hope of the future, always. It's an event over which to rejoice. It's a reason to celebrate all the potential every child brings. It's an occasion for friends and relatives to to congregate together, celebrate the birth of a child. And and this, of of course, is what happens in verse 57 with Elizabeth and Zacharias. The relatives come together. The the neighbors come together. And being one of those relatives, I believe, considering the context of everything, that Mary stayed with Elizabeth, as we've been studying Uh, She stayed with her through the birth of John the Baptist. And and in verse 36, we we saw that Mary was informed that Elizabeth was six months pregnant, right? So Mary took off to go be with Elizabeth. And then in verse 56, we're informed informed, uh, that Mary stayed with her about three months before returning home. So there's your nine months. And it would seem strange to me as a relative that Mary would have departed, you know, in the last days before birth. So taking that into account, Mary is also probably Luke's source of information that we're looking at here regarding this birth and then later uh, the birth of Jesus that we'll see in chapter 2. Mary is likely the source for Luke. And as he says in verses 2 and 3, when we first started this book, he said, he investigated all the events carefully from the beginning through eyewitnesses. People who actually saw it. And so during her three-month stay, uh, Mary with Elizabeth and Zacharias, I anticipate that Zacharias would have written some of these things out, both for Elizabeth and Mary, uh, of what the angel had told him. And since Zacharias and Elizabeth were elderly, you know, at this time of birth, we know from the entire narrative they were very old. It was a miraculous conception and birth. Um... Because of that, it would seem that some 60 years later when Luke is writing this gospel, Zacharias and Elizabeth are probably not still alive. Mary would have been the most obvious eyewitness of what occurred here at the birth of John the Baptist as she recounted to Luke, if I am accurate, her arrival at Elizabeth's home, what happened there, the birth we observe today, including Zacharias' prophecy that we're going to study next week. That begins in verse 67. So Mary was probably present to hear Zechariah's prophecy. So let's look at what Mary saw, would have seen, in verse 57. It says that now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. 
Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. So verse 57 simply says, now the time had come. A more literal rendering of that, perhaps your translation uh, says, the time was fulfilled, or the times were full. The time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth. And the time was fulfilled here doesn't merely indicate her nine months were up. Though they were, her nine months were up, what is being conveyed is the principle of prophetic fulfillment. The time was full. The time was fulfilled. The time had come. This term fulfilled, it's the same Greek term that we'll see later in chapter 2 when Mary gives birth to Jesus. We're told there that the days were completed for Mary to give birth. Same word, the days were fulfilled. And this suggests God's timing and that he was in complete control of the conception, the timing, the birth. Is that typical? Well, Job 14 verse 1 tells us, Man who is born of woman is short-lived. And in verse 5, his days are determined. The number of his months is with God. And his limits, God, you have set so that he cannot pass. The length of your months, the length of your lifespan, your days are determined. They're predetermined. The limit of your days is set. Scripture says you can't pass by them. And until we come to recognize the majesty and the scope of God's sovereignty in the birth of a child, in the days of a child, and mature out of this notion that, that, that just suggests that, well, God just kind of foreknew. You know, that, that God just kind of has some extra good knowledge. Until we realize that God is in control, that He ordains, and fully grasp this concept in Scripture, we're never going to worship appropriately. We're never going to understand Him as He reveals Himself. Sovereignty is one of those doctrines that is solid food. It's for the mature, Hebrews 5.12 says. And God is in control. He's not a spectator. He's not just watching what's going on and He just knows, well, that's going to happen coming up. And I think after that, that's going to happen. He's not just seeing ahead. Psalm 139, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 16. And in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one of them. People like to think that they're sovereign over themselves. That, that, that they are sovereign. That would mean that God is not sovereign, by the way. But, but what does Scripture say? Scripture says there is only one sovereign, King of kings, Lord of Lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. There's only one sovereign. So which one of us here is it? Only God. He is the only sovereign. He's in complete control. And you're probably asking yourself right now, why is he going on about this? I hope it becomes clear in one minute. 
Why am I making such a big deal about this, the days in the womb? How God is sovereign. The reason is God is in control even over the exact time of conception. Precisely the time of conception. Or the lack of conception, as we have seen here. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6, as we read last week uh, of Hannah and her song of praise, she was barren because the Lord had closed her womb, right? Not just because God knew that she couldn't have children. She was barren because God had closed her womb. And then later in chapter 2, we know from her song that we read aloud last week, God opened her womb. And in Psalm 113, verse 9, which we said, spoke, uh, uh, I read to you just a few moments ago, it says that he gives the barren woman joy in her household. He opens the womb. So God's timing, folks, is perfect. It is perfect. There is never a situation when a young pregnant mother, expecting mother, needs to lament, you know, this isn't good timing. In God's economy, there is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. The whole idea of an unplanned pregnancy is at best the fruit of an agnostic theology that doesn't believe in God as he reveals himself in Scripture. They don't know God. It's agnostic. If you younger mothers here, you young ladies, even teens, would would take a moment to ask one of the more more mature mothers that are amongst us, one, uh, one of the mothers who has had a number of children, they've gone off on their own, they've gone through life together, families are full grown, I'm pretty sure... You could ask around, none of them regret having any of their children. Regardless of their timing or their situation. You know, my mom may be able to point out one. But that's one of my older brothers. He doesn't know about it. He doesn't listen to my sermons. So the secret's with us, right? He'll never find out. My mom had six children. She had a lot of struggles. She had some that were more troubled than others. She doesn't regret any of them. Folks, regardless of the circumstances, timing, related challenges that come, mothers love their children. God's timing is perfect. Elizabeth here is no exception. She rejoices with her relatives and neighbors that that God has shown her mercy and sovereignly opened her womb when she's an old woman, providing her a son. And she's not unique to God's timing. This is fulfillment of Luke 1.14 where the angel told Zacharias, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And we're seeing that here right now, nine months later. In verse 59, um, they had rejoiced over the birth, and it says that it had happened that on the eighth day that they, had, they came to circumcise the child, so they gathered together for the rite of circumcision, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. The circumcision is in obedience to the Mosaic law. That's in Leviticus 12, verse 3. 
And like all nosy relatives, they want to step in and name the child. You ever had that happen to you? They decide what the appropriate name is for the child. See, that was typically in this day the, the role of the father. Naming the child was his responsibility. But remember, Zacharias here is both deaf and mute. So he's a little bit out of the picture. He's standing over there not hearing anything, not able to say anything. So the relatives, in their wisdom, step in. They, they hadn't realized what had taken place uh, with the angel giving the name of the child uh, while they were at the temple. So they, they decide to name the child in honor of the father. He, he's getting quite old. They don't have any children. And uh, they're going to honor him, it seems, through giving the child the name of Zacharias. Seemed to be a logical choice. But then Elizabeth steps in and says what many of you mothers have. Nope. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. In verse 60, Indeed, but he shall be called John. Which means, God has shown grace. It's the name that the angel had given to Zacharias in verse 13. So obviously, Zacharias had communicated to Elizabeth, probably Mary as well as they were together, uh, some of the events in the temple, the name of the child, probably had boards, wooden tablets with, with wax in them that they could write. He had communicated uh, some of the things that had happened in the ta- uh, temple to Elizabeth. She knew the name was going to be John. And, and here's where we discover that Zacharias is not only mute, he's, he's also de- uh, deaf as well. Uh, in verse 61, the relatives said to her, to Elizabeth, there's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. So, so they had to make signs to him because he couldn't hear. He had to write down the name of John on a tablet because he couldn't speak. And this is where it gets interesting. The people become astonished. Well, why is that? Because he and Elizabeth had the same name ahead of time? I don't think so. I believe it's because it says that instantaneously, according to verse 64, at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. At once, immediately, his tongue was loosed, and people recognized this is all a sign from God. This is all a sign. Uh, They're surely recalling the time Zacharias exited the temple nine months earlier. Recorded in verse 22, uh, we're told that he couldn't speak. The people realized he had seen some kind of vision. Something had happened while he was burning incense. Now the people are going to get to hear everything that Zacharias experienced that day. The things that he was forced to keep pent up all this time. In fact, I wouldn't even doubt that verses 65 and 66, if you look at them together, they're kind of a summary statement of the, of the mood of the people. The summary of their response to Zechariah's prophecy contained in verses 67 through 79 that we'll look at next week. There are no clear chronological markers here in order. There's no point where it says, and then, or, and next. 
and or something such we saw in Jonah, and after this. I believe it's a, a summary statement um, of what they were going to hear. They were gripped with fear. You can't read chronologically uh, chronology too woodenly into Scripture if it isn't given. You'll miss part of the comprehension of what is, is happening. Verses 65 and 66 uh, summarize their feelings, their fear, their astonishment, only after the fact that he, he spoke the prophecy. Uh, their, prophecy uh, their response to this prophecy gripped them with fear. In verse 65, it says that fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. See the summary? of everything that happened that day. All who heard them kept them in mind. See, they, they took note of them, right? That'll be important in a moment. And they're saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So Zacharias, his sudden outburst, it, it startles them. And his prophecy becomes a sign to the people that God was doing something new, something great in Israel. Remember, he'd been dumb, he'd been mute for nine months, he hadn't said or heard a word. That's tough to even fake for ten minutes. You ever tried to not talk for ten minutes? Fake it like when you're a kid? I'm just going to make him think that I lost my voice. Three minutes later you blow it, right? That, that's tough to fake. People knew this was the real deal with Zacharias. There was no doubt about it. Um, I'm sure the people, some of the people would have tested him. He comes home, can't talk, can't hear. You know, us guys, we kind of pretend that once in a while, don't we? I can't hear you. I'm sure it, possibly at one point Elizabeth might have come up behind him with a couple pans and clanged him real hard just to see if he really couldn't hear. Or, or perhaps some of the neighbor's children uh, in town or at the market tried to startle him, jump up behind and go, boo. But nothing. No startling, nothing. He couldn't hear anything for nine months you can't fake that he didn't speak anything for nine months this was genuine so so when he suddenly broke out in praise prophesying giving the names child god has shown us grace the relatives and the neighbors accept this this is all from god what is this child going to be they wondered what is this child miraculously born of this elderly couple and now this sign of Zacharias and he prophesies, what's going to happen in Israel? And there began a buzz throughout the hill country surrounding this child. So we have to recognize that John the Baptist, he had a reputation going from the beginning, from the get-go. Remember it says, they kept this stuff in mind. What's this child going to be? And we can expect from this passage that the neighbors kept an eye on him as he grew up. They monitored him, this child, as he began even to become a man and go out into the wilderness to start his ministry. People knew who he was. People were aware. People remembered. And we'll hear Zechariah prophesy next week concerning John. And this is probably what the people heard. In verse 76, Zechariah said, and you, child, he's speaking of John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. That's why the people were gripped with fear. What is going to happen with this child? And there was a consensus woven into this culture, this community in the hill country about John. A recognition that this, this baby that was born to that elderly couple, John the Baptist, he's a genuine prophet. He's the real deal. And they realized this long before Christ's ministry even comes on the scene. For 30 years they were looking at John the Baptist to see what he might be. And it sheds a lot of light on the reaction of the Pharisees as they stand up against Christ and, and he had cleansed the temple for the second time, if you remember. And it's getting right near the end towards his crucifixion. And the Pharisees wanted to know, by what authority do you do this? These things, by what authority? Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew 21, 24, do you remember how Jesus responded? the Pharisees, he said, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, what source was it from? Was it heaven from heaven or was it from men? And the Pharisees began to reason among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven... Jesus will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet, right? And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Jesus also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They feared the people because of the reputation that John the Baptist had. So when we get into his preaching here in a few more weeks and the preaching in the wilderness and the people are going out to him, there was a buzz about John the Baptist from the beginning. Things were going on in Israel and people knew about it. He was born a prophet. But as we close, he would have never realized all that potential, that God-ordained potential, if it hadn't been for his mother. Verse 80 says the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. You know, that's almost certainly in large part because of Elizabeth. We knew that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous people, that they lived according to uh, God's word. Elizabeth surely raised him. She took care of him. She did what a mother was supposed to do. And we can surely give thanks to God for Elizabeth who poured her life into her son. And at the same time, we can give God thanks for our own mothers who poured themselves into us as we grew, as they took care of us. You know, we surely wouldn't be here today the way that we are worshiping the the events in life if it hadn't been for our mothers or a figure who acted as a mother. And I'm not talking merely physically present because we were born. It's because of what mothers do for their children. And I imagine you all agree that none of us would have survived. This world, we all going through trying to navigate the horrors, the injustice, the lying, the cheating, the deception, the difficulty in this world. 
I wouldn't have made it without my mother. And yet we're here today worshiping Christ together. In some part, at least, through figures who were mothers to us. The way that they shaped us and God used that to bring us together to worship Christ. Each of us has that potential to be filled. As I said earlier, everyone has a calling of a sort. Some are to a preaching role. Everyone to live out their life in Christ. Every born-again Christian. And that potential needs to be fulfilled. John the Baptist had to go preach. He was compelled to preach. Jesus had to do his work on the cross. Every single one of us has a role that is ordained by God. Our mothers were a big part of that. And as Pastor Weiler said earlier, uh, as a symbol of our appreciation to moms, to be moms, those who've been moms over and over again, thank you. As a sign of appreciation, um, we'd like to give you a rose. It's just symbolic. I know it's just a rose, but it means a lot from us that you would have been a mother, that you would have cared for your children, and for young mothers to take care of your children. Just a reminder of what God is doing, what he has done through you, that his timing was perfect, even when it didn't seem that good. We'd like each mother to come forward and receive a rose after we're done praying. Let's do that.